Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you. I have another topical message this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the prophet Isaiah chapter 40. The prophet Isaiah chapter 40. In a moment, we will stand and read verses 27 through 31. But the text is verse 31. I'll come back to that in a moment. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from Yahweh, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Please be seated. This is one of the glorious chapters in the Bible, but for this morning's consideration, it uh, will be non-expository. In other words, I won't be looking to open up what's in that text too much, but rather point out some other things concerning the topic found in verse 31, which is our text. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. The title of this morning's message is Spent, like uh, spending one's energy, spending one's faith. I know that God wants me to speak on this verse about comforting his people. Ironically, verse 1 would have been, to me, uh, more to the point because he gets right to the point. And there the Lord says, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says the Lord. But that is not the text that he guided me to. It is verse 31. Apparently, learning about waiting is comforting. Eventually, we face conflict between God's promises and the events in our lives. It's not uncommon. It is found in Scripture. In other words, there comes a time for we who believe when the promises of God seem to not apply to us and we are... Uh, very much knocked off balance by this. Where are the promises of the Lord? This was what Gideon said. Where are the promises? Where are the victories that our fathers had experienced? Well, it is helpful to remember, at least for me, it is um, resolved when I do remember that, yes, God has promises in his word, but he has other things in his word too. This is displayed for us when Jesus was in the wilderness. And Satan would quote a scripture promise to him. Throw yourself down from this pinnacle. For it is written. And the Lord countered with, it is written again. There's more scripture. There are other things to factor in in serving God. In life, we find ourselves used up from just sometimes just living. Even an unbeliever, of course, comes to a place in their life where they just feel spent. Sometimes, we Christians, we feel spent for serving or in serving, for gallant causes. 
Other times, again, just life. Because of what someone else has unjustly done to us. We feel like we've used up our resources. Effective service for, for Christ requires fuel. And fuel must be replenished. It's a law of creation. Fuel gets spent. If you make a campfire, you need oxygen, you need heat, and you need fuel. And eventually you run out of fuel and have to go get more in the form of logs or whatever else you're burning. Living spends fuel. And it is helpful for we who, de- who believe to not lose sight of these things. We don't have to walk around thinking about it all the time, but the, it is still something that uh, is uh, not to be lost when we find ourselves serving and spent or just living and spent. And we certainly must shun spiritual wasting, wasting away spiritually, just sort of evaporating. Uh, These things are a part of life. We shouldn't be surprised by them, but we should not be bullied by them either. Even at our worst, we must guard against the slides backwards. Job, of course, you mentioned Job. The first thing we think about is, I'm glad I'm not Job. And, uh, well, at least one of the things I think of when I think of Job. But even at his worst, he still held to the Lord. His wife did not. And so we pick it up in Job 2, and there we'll read about Job and Mrs. Job. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. When I read that verse, I want to be Job in the response. I don't want to be the one that tells another believer to just curse God and die. To give up. That your plight uh, overrules your obedience to God, your service to Him. I, we admire Job's response. And the rest of the book develops. We put him on the roller coaster where one minute he's down, the next minute he's up, and the next minute he's down. And I'll come back to that. We are to rise up and work, and if you have to wait for God, and find yourself waiting a long time for God even, there's still work to be done. Waiting does not excuse us from building, from developing, from working. You will be replenished when you're spent, because it is written, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Serving God makes a servant weak, not strong, in the sense that I am talking about this morning, of being spent, strength spent. Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, not the Philistines, he didn't really have a letter for them. He says, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And we remember when he wrote that Philippian letter, he was in jail. And it wasn't, you know, a a nice jail, as we might consider jails today. Second Corinthians, he said to them, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. 
And then he adds, though you seem to love me less and less. This is the serving God. Makes servants weak and not strong. We should be mindful of this. Otherwise, we have this expectation, quite possibly, that uh, serving God, we should always feel robust and strong and, you know, just uh, sort of at at, uh, full strength of encouragement. But that's not how it works. And that's why we have these stories in the Bible. It's not surprising that in this uh, created universe, the physical universe, creation is winding down. Things are being used up. Creation depends on other things. Derived strength. This is how God has made it. The strongest on the field of life at some point is used up. Now, when I say used up, I don't mean used up and no longer any use. But just spent. Out of energy. From their perspective, not God's perspective, because as we just read, God, he doesn't run out of energy. He doesn't run out of strength, knowledge. To survive, though, when we are out of resources, that strength, those resources must be renewed. Judges chapter 15 tells us the story of a great man, a strong man, who used up his strength. And was going to die unless God did something. Pick it up in Judges 15. This is the story uh, in a a day in the life of Samson. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it. And killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. Then he became very thirsty, so he cried out to Yahweh and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Well, that is a picture of being spent in life. Here it is in the service of God, against the enemies of God. Ideally, that should be for all of us who claim Jesus as Lord. We are born again so we can serve, not just get to heaven. Otherwise, save us and take us right to heaven right away. We are left behind in this life to help God bring others into eternal life also. And with God, of course... There are no years to make him decline. There's no aging with God. And his powers remain strong throughout. This is taught, the immutability of God, the unchanging nature and character of God. Malachi chapter 3, for I am Yahweh, I do not change. Explicitly stated, right out. This attribute is exclusive to deity. It only belongs to God. And it is applied to Jesus Christ, because Jesus is God the Son. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what I'm reading in the Old Testament concerning God's interactions with his people applies to me in the New Testament also. His character, his will, darkness drags us down, but hope in the Lord lifts us up. 
And losing sight of this makes us less effective and can even make us a stumbling block for others. If we lose sight of the glory of God as believers, when we are in some great hour of darkness, we can bring others down with us if we're not careful. Elijah, the great prophet, spent himself defeating evil forces atop of Mount Carmel, dealing with that great evil influence that Jezebel had brought into the land But evil counterattacked. Evil plotted the death of Elijah for daring to purge the land of the evil influence. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 19, when he saw that, when he saw that they were going to kill him and, and plotted his death, when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. Which, of course, is a sermon in itself, because Elijah, come on, you had just experienced such a great victory. You'd called fire down from heaven to ignite the altar. You slew the the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. Why are you running from a death threat? And not only did he run, he kept running. And he ran some more. And when he finally arrived to where he was going, he was physically, he was emotionally, And he was spiritually spent. When he stopped running, there was nothing left. That's probably why he stopped running. But God didn't leave him that way. Because those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And we pick that part of the story up in 1 Kings chapter 19. It is a profound story. And it has direct application to us when we come across these incidences in our own lives. Do you know to suffer and endure while worshiping is to be victorious in Christ? You don't have to be delivered to be victorious. You just have to take the pain in Christ. I don't uh, care for that myself. And I don't mind seeing it in other people. But when it's my turn, I find myself sometimes for even lesser struggles scrambling to draw from God some promise, some sense of his presence. 1 Kings 19, speaking of Elijah, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. This is after he had already put miles between he and those who were looking to kill him. And he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Yahweh, take my life for I am no better than my father's. And then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. You see how spent he was, how tired he was, how in need of replenishment he was. It continues in verse 6 of 1 Kings 19. Actually, verse 7 we are now. And the angel of Yahweh came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. This really happened. Of course, the faithless will question and him and haw and fuss and yeah, yeah, right. But God said this happened. And I'd rather believe God than an atheist whom I don't even believe in. 
if you believe in atheists, you're wrong. Even they believe in God. They just don't have the nerve to say it because they're bitter. They want to punish God. Well, anyway, that's another story, and uh, uh, some of you may differ with that, but you are wrong. (laughs) We can learn how to wait, and we can learn how to be strengthened. And I'm not at all telling you this is child's play. I'm not at all telling you this is easy. When Jesus said, take up your cross every day, he wasn't fooling around. It meant something. Paul, again, as he was being spent from from the jail that he was in, writing to the Philippians, says, speaking of learning how to wait, learning how to endure, he says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Can you just download that to me? Can you just impart that to me, that I can learn to be content? I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ Christ who strengthens me. We like to think about that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me while admitting, omitting the hunger and the lack of comfort and security. And yet the example that God gives to us is the child of God must learn how to wait, must do something, must make the waiting count, because it's not the whole story. Consider those who waited in Scripture. Well, of course, the Lord Jesus. He waited and he worked for 29 and a half years just to spend his life in three and a half years of ministry that resulted in his public execution, the crucifixion. Abraham waited 25 years for his beloved Isaac to be born after God told him he would have this child. Of Joseph, how can we forget Joseph, who waited years as a slave, then a framed criminal, looking at Genesis 40, verse 23, Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Yeah, Joseph, when, when he had the dream and Joseph told him the dream, you'll be restored back to Pharaoh. And as the butler was leaving the jail, Joseph said, remember me to Pharaoh. Two years went by, we're told, before the butler conveniently remembered. Oh, by the way, Joseph in jail, he tells dreams. He gives the answer to dreams. Moses waited 40 years to serve God. Well, he tried in the first 40 years and failed. Couldn't even uh, commit a crime and get away with it. Then he waited another 40 years until God called him. And Moses was no longer looking by this time. And as the story goes, his reluctance tells us that Moses just was sort of jaded with people. I don't want to serve. They're a problem. They're a pain in the neck. Find somebody else, he tells God. He had to wait 1,600 years to get into the promised land. And when he got there, he wasn't even impressed. He was busy talking to the Lord. He wasn't looking around and saying, oh, wow, this is wonderful, the land of milk and honey. How can we forget Joseph and Caleb? They're waiting. They waited 40 years for a guilty generation to die. That guilty generation kept them out of the promised land. Oh, they got in when they spied it out and they went out, but they had to wait another 40 years to go back in. Caleb had to wait till his 80s to take by battle, by force, the mountain God promised him. Joshua chapter 14, 
This is Caleb talking to his old comrade Joshua. He said, give me this mountain of which Yahweh spoke in that day. Wouldn't you love to have seen the look in Caleb's eyes as he's talking to Joshua? Give me this mountain. It was nothing casual about this request. It was, yeah, you know, I kind of like that piece of property. What's, what's it go for? That, that wasn't the strength behind this petition to Joshua. Give me this mountain which Yahweh spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there. And that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that Yahweh will be with me. And I shall be able to drive them out as Yahweh has said. You see, he's not presumptuous. He's not naming it and claiming it, blabbing it and grabbing it, you know, squealing and stealing it. He's just saying, God might give this to me. Maybe something's changed with the Lord. I've got this promise, but you know, he's God and I'm subject to his rule. David, of course, we've been covering David on Wednesdays. He waited years and fought for his life before receiving his God-promised throne. Strangely enough, if you're suffering and you're hearing these things, it's not that misery in the Christian loves company. It's that misery in the Christian from company derives strength. Because it says, if they can do it through the Lord, then so can I. David, as I mentioned, fought for his life before receiving the God-promised throne, 1 Samuel 23. David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. It wasn't fun for David. Abigail had to wait to be delivered from a full husband. May that not be your burden. Paul waited years in Tarsus before being called to a greater field of ministry. He did work in Tarsus while he waited. He didn't know he was waiting. He was sent away. They couldn't wait. The Christians couldn't wait to get Paul out of Jerusalem, out of Israel. And so Paul goes back to Tarsus, his hometown, and he builds churches there. He preaches there. But he thinks that pretty much this is the ministry. And then God sends Barnabas and retrieves Paul and expands the ministry and the suffering along with it. If ever your morale as a servant of God touches rock bottom, then reflect. Others have been where you are before you and prevailed. And others have had worse situations than you, more than likely, and prevailed. But then... We say, that was them back then. This is me right now. What do you do with that? You have to believe in the inerrancy of God's word for them and for me. That was for them and this is for me too. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. I believe that. I, for one would not be standing here if it were not so. I would have been spent in ministry long ago, long ago and not replenished, not refreshed, not restored, and gone. But God does restore. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, All these things happened, emphasis, to them as examples 
And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. This is for the New Testament church, he says. The, when, when Christ ascended to heaven, the end, the, the, the end time started. We're living in the last of the last days, the technology dictating that to us prophetically. But when Paul again says to the Corinthians, all these things happened to them. And now, now they are examples to us. In these last days, God preserved them in print for us to have ammunition through the admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. Now there's more to this. This is the harder side. There's a softer side to this waiting for the Lord. Waiting for God needs strength rather than weakness. We tend to think, you know, you're just weak. I can't do anything. Well, the matter is out of your hands. But the power to do nothing, the power to keep away from self-created ideas, the power to stay out of God's way, that requires strength. And of course, Hagar, uh, Ishmael, came through Abraham and Sarah getting in the way instead of just waiting for God. Now look back to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 29. God tells us, us this in this, again, this glorious chapter. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. We tend to say, okay, he's going to give me strength to break out. And God says, no, sometimes I give you strength to stay in. To be a prisoner. To wait it out. You don't think it's strength because you're screaming so much. And I understand that. I would be too in your spot. The pain, the pain, the pain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But this is what it takes. I need strength to restrain myself. To keep from interfering with God and making things work worse. I need spiritual strength. To hold natural strength in its place. Strength sufficient to enable men to wait for God is what? What is that strength? What is that strength that allows me to wait for God? Well, the short answer, of course, would be faith. Built on truth. But that's not the whole answer. There's got to be more. It is love. It is my love for God, which requires that I receive his love. Not in theory. Not like I like that God says he loves me, but I really believe it too. And I love him back. Yeah, the psalmist wrote, Yahweh preserves all who love him. Again, you say, well, I got a problem with that promise. It is written again. It must be balanced. The scripture must be balanced. As we go through this life, trusting God as the Savior that he says he is. That his eternity is bigger than the finite, the right now. I struggle with this too. I, you know, Solomon wrote, in much wisdom, there is grief. The more you learn about the Bible, the tougher it can be. Because you're looking for these things to, to take place in your life and they're not unfolding as you anticipated them. You thought the Lord would show up with, on, a, on a deed with a sword in his hand and slay the opposition. 
and he does not always do it just like that. In hours of darkness, love still brings light. It is why Paul and Silas were singing songs while they were hurting, having been caned. It helps us to know God's word addresses, even in dark, the darkest hours, God's word addresses our soul, our deep needs. In Psalm 73, the psalmist just couldn't, he just, you know, the rich, they just get away with murder. Their kids do better than my kids. They care nothing about, not all the rich, but the rich that he had in mind. And uh, so, you know, he's just lamenting before God how unfair it is. But then he writes this. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Well, there's been times that I've come into the sanctuary of God, and I've understood their end, and I still feel pretty bad. But I know. I know God. I know he's invested in me, his love and his care, and that I love him. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stick with him, no matter what. And so to wait, to wait, uh, it uh, does not insist that we do nothing. Just sit down like, you know, the proverbial bump on a log. We do sit, but we do something in the meantime. The very act of waiting spends physical, mental, and emotional, uh, spiritual energy. But it is to be used because the cause is worthwhile. And that's another part of it. Love makes the object worthwhile. God is worthwhile to me. He's worth suffering for. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, again, Paul saying to the Corinthians, the church that he started is a church that had a large contingent or a large enough contingent of those who turned on him. He says, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. That's the treatment he got for loving them. Making the work real, keeping it real while we wait. It, it counts. It matters. It's a valid concern. Is my serving God and being spent and exhausted and out of resources, is it worth it? You who usher, you who serve in the children's ministry, you who come and clean the church, you who serve in any capacity for God, when you don't feel like serving anymore, when you don't feel appreciated, you've got to ask yourself, is it worth it to you? Because it's worth it to God. Galatians 4.11, Paul says, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. His concern was, I don't want to do things for nothing. I need things to be useful in my life. I'm not built to where I can't reason. I am built to where I do reason. I do think things through. And I need to know that what I am doing is not for nothing. Well, at some point, the logic and the reason begin to become obscure. And we then have to default to faith because that faith is not in vain. That faith is real. When we came to Christ, it's because we met Christ. We know he is real. And that allows us to move on. Isaiah 49, verse 4, speaking of the servant of God, the Messiah. Then I said... And this is just drawing us into the, the dynamics of logic and reason and concern and value, all bundled into this. Then I said, I have labored in vain. 
I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with Yahweh and my work with my God. Oh, God is going to reward those who wait for him. God is going to build them up. We accept this by faith. On the cross, Christ knew this wasn't the whole story. He knew this was the will of God. And it was so senseless. He committed no crime. He helped people. And this is what he got in return. To belong to something meaningful is inspiring. But to belong to something meaningless is disheartening. To think that you're serving and it's wasted. To think that you're, you know, when Paul says, I love you, but you don't love me back. He could have said, this is just is not worth it. But he continued to love them. He continued to invest in them. He continued to hurt and to reach out to them. Because the Spirit led him to do that. The Spirit, in other words, said, Paul, I brought you to Corinth. I strengthened you in Corinth when your life was in jeopardy. I brought two people into your life at a critical point to keep you alive. I invested in these people through you. This is my church. You are my servant. I need you to fight for this one. And that is what he did. He did the same thing with the Galatians. They went behind Paul and tried to undo all the preaching he did. And Paul said, this, this is a fight that I must answer. And he writes to us the Galatian letter. And just six chapters, he covers all that needs to be covered. But in the middle of that, he says to the believer, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Because that's what we need from each other too. Not just from God. When God restores us, when God builds us up again, when God renews our strength, very often he uses people to do it. Being a hermit is not part of Christianity. Being isolated is not part of Christianity. We are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And wherever you find yourself is all the world where there are others to reach, to belong to something. If I'm going to writhe in waiting, may I somehow make it count and not just have suffering. I I don't want to just suffer and it doesn't count. I don't want to suffer at all. Uh, But if I am going to, may it build up the kingdom. Sometimes in life, we find our backs against the wall. We're, we're trapped. Have you ever felt trapped as a Christian? Where it seems that God won't help you, you can't help yourself, and there's nobody else that can help you. You're trapped. Your back is up against the wall. Well, God knows that. He's already explained it time and time again. I see it all. Why are you saying to me that I don't care? I do care. Some known enemy or enemies stalking us over a long period of time. Meanwhile, we wait on the Lord by faith in love. What good is trying to wait by faith if you have not love? You have to, again, you have to love God. You've got to get past thinking that if he doesn't help you, he somehow doesn't love you. God loved you and drew you to him when you were full of sin, without repentance, without Christ. He still loved you and he still called upon you. Waiting without alternatives becomes part of God's solution. I should repeat that. Waiting without alternatives, is often God's solution. That's the answer right there. God, just tell me. I'm telling you. I need you to wait. I need you to take this. You can do this. I believe the value of waiting. Why? Why do I believe that it's 
There is value in waiting while I am hurting. Because the Bible teaches it. That's why I believe it. If you stand up and say, I believe in the Lord, I believe in his word. Okay, then you have to also believe this. This is what Job said. Should we not take good and bad from the Lord? He knows what he's doing. Job did not understand what it was all about. We do when we read the book of Job. He finds out much later. If it is useful to God, then it will be to his people. It will be to his causes. I make no guarantee apart from scripture. And you shouldn't either. It is to the law and to the prophets. That's whom we turn. Precept upon precept. Don't think I came to destroy the Lord, but to law, but to fulfill the law. The word of God, living and powerful. God breathe. It is a big deal. Without it, you're doomed. Even Abraham got the word of God. Made uh, not in printed form, but vocal. God spoke to Abraham. He spoke to other prophets, other people of God. He spoke to Hagar. I make no guarantee apart from Scripture. When we come to Christ, unusual categories of joy and sorrow emerge. Is that not true? Categories of sorrow and joy that you did not know before Christ, now you come in contact with. You're almost, you know, apart from Christ, you're almost a free spirit. You make up your own rules, you make up your own God, and you just sort of dance along until you die and are judged. But when you come to Christ, everything changes. The lights turn on. Now everything is filtered through his word, through his son. Failure to obey, failure to be, failure to overcome, failure to realize, failure to endure. Now these things are big. Whereas before you could evade them. With, with greater ease. And these can cause me to wonder if my waiting is punishment. If I'm not as obedient as I should be, am I therefore suffering for that disobedience? Though my heart wants to obey. Though I would give almost anything to just be that obedient servant, but I cannot be that person. So when I suffer now, what happens? Well, the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself, comes along and begins to accuse you. Yeah, that's why you're getting it. That's why you have to wait, and he's not going to show up because you're guilty. It is a flawed logic, and it is a lie. It is a flawed logic because I could then say, Satan, if God was punishing me for doing some, for failing some commandment, then he should be all over you. You see the logic behind that. We have to learn God's undeserved kindness. We have to understand that God is so ready to forgive and love on his people. Not excuse a wrong, not dismiss it as being, ah, oh, it's okay, it's no big deal. Sin is sin. It costs the death of his son and it costs the suffering and, and harm to countless multitudes of human beings and animals alike. Second Corinthians 12, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul could have said, I like that, but it's not enough. He doesn't say that. He says, therefore, therefore, because of the kindness of God on my life, most gladly, I will rather boast of my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Well, I've been to that place. I've preached that, that the power of Christ may rest upon me and been in some situation where I can't feel the power of Christ. But by faith, I know it's there. And hell hates it. Without inspired strength, we decline, we deteriorate, we fall apart. 
Now back to that roller coaster ride of faith. It does its divine work, you know. When Job was at one minute saying, God is attacking me, and at the other minute saying, I know my Redeemer lives, that's the roller coaster. One minute he's low, the next minute he's high in his faith. Satan fears that roller coaster in us. Satan is afraid when you are up one moment, down the next moment. Why? Because it prevailed with Job. Job was that way and he won. And Satan hasn't forgotten. It proves we're doing more than just, I, I dread this phrase, when someone says, I'm hanging in there. I don't ever want to hang in there. It makes me feel like I'm on a cliff. And if I get stop hanging, I plunge. I don't want, I don't, I mean, I understand it, and I don't, I mean, if you say it, I'm not going to say, oh, you said it. But, but for me, I'd, I've never liked it, and I'm not going to like it. I don't want to hang, I don't, I don't want an angel to show up and say, how you doing? Oh, I'm hanging in there. Even if I can say the same thing a different way, I'll take that. I'm fighting. I'm struggling. I'm struggling to trust God. I'm struggling to feel comfortable in my faith. But I am struggling nonetheless. I am still kicking. Nahum chapter 1. Yahweh is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. That can be condemning, can it not? He knows those who's trusting in him, who trust in him. And I'm not trusting in him right now. And yet, I'm talking to him. I'm asking him. I must still be trusting him. The definitions begin to move a little bit, do they? Let me say something about definitions. It's kind of off target, but uh, off topic, but still very important. You get an old dictionary and you find words that are now obsolete. When you get to heaven, there are going to be words that are obsolete. They'll be gone. Sorrow, suffering, jealousy, envy, covetousness, meanness, murder, gone. That's the God we serve. And he says, those things happen to them. These things will happen to you. You will be in heaven. He said it to the thief on the cross, and he says it to you and me. Today you will be with me in paradise. That man just got the time and day. He got the date. Our date is to be announced in most cases. So, take that up and down movement, that roller coaster away, and what do you have? If you take the up and down movement away, what do you have? You have a flat line. That's what you have. No more waves of faith to register that you're still in it. Satan hates our faith, and he hates that we fight from faith. Philippians 4, Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Notice the emphasis and the always. He says it twice. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Why, why would he have to say it like that? Why doesn't he say, hey, have a nice day? Because the, the language that he is using here has life to give it its definition. He's saying, don't back down. Keep moving. God will renew your strength. Right now you feel that you're at the end of yourself. You're, you're flying on, on fumes, but you're flying. It is not a... Christian, to the Christian's credit, that we should be weak. No one wakes up, well, I sure hope I'm a weakling today. And so Paul says, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And I would add to that, 
Today, if you are not cornered, if your back is not against the wall, be strong because you're going to need that strength if you do get cornered. We should learn how to wait. We must learn to fly off of the fumes that I mentioned if it comes to that because Christ is worthy. God is, is not only worthy because he is sovereign, but he is worthy because he loves us. He is worthy because he cares Will I serve God even if I don't think he cares? It can come to that. God is too great to not care. That's what the Bible tells us. God is too great to not care. If that were the so when they were doing what they were doing uh, at what became the Tower of Babel, God would have just let them get away with it. But he said, now we have to go down and take care of this because if we don't, there'll be no end to the evil that they're doing. And that's where we're coming uh, with technology. At some point, God is going to say, okay, this is enough before they start really getting uh, some crazy things going. Uh, God is actually puzzled by our doubting his care. And we, we read this in Isaiah 40. If you still have your Bible, we're almost done. Isaiah, uh, if you still have it open, and you should still have it unless someone stole it. And <laughs> verse 27 of Isaiah 40. I said no exposition, but here's a little bit. Why do you say, and I'm just skip to the point, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Now remember, the ministry of Isaiah was in the shadow of the Assyrian Empire that conquered almost everything except Jerusalem. And so it wasn't though the prophet was had days of peace and it was just wonderful outside. I'm going out to the garden and I'm going to pray and I'm going to write some prophecy for future generations. He wrote these things again in hard times. Some of the kings that he served under were wicked men. And in fact, the history says that he was himself martyred by the, the king Manasseh. Duty is the pathway to glory, it has been said. And there's a lot of truth in that. It's okay to have a surge of faith, to rally faith. It is encouraging. In your weakest times, all of a sudden you get this surge of faith. It only lasts for a little bit. But it's enough to carry you to the next time you get that surge and have need for it. Until you're completely out of the problem. You look around you see all the things that God has brought your way and put in your place. And you say, okay, the Lord is working. Those are signs of his, his activity and his presence. At this point in the sermon, I can lie to you, you who are waiting and hurting. I can say, don't worry, it'll be all right. But I have no right to say that to anybody when they're struggling. Instead, we give the truth from Scripture. That sets the besieged heart free to serve. We don't know if we're going to survive some stoning in life. But we can face those stonings as heroes. This is what preaching is for. This is the stuff that comes across your mind uh, from preaching that would otherwise not get there. God has ordained this. This is not a man-made thing. Acts chapter 7. We have it illustrated for us. And just like the Old Testament events happened for our strength... So the New Testament events. 
And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He's still ministering as he's dying. Instead of saying, uh, you know, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit, and that's it. He's quoting his Lord from the cross. He also says, don't charge them with this. That's grace and love. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said, the gospel which I preach to you is good to live upon and good to die upon. Do you believe that? His will be done, we say. But don't look for feelings to stand in truth that's built by faith. The human will is the throne of the soul. It is your will. That's where you are. And the intellect and the emotions are to be subject to your will. But those subjects are fully capable of rebellion. Your intellect and your feelings can rebel against your will, and thus the fight of the spirit and the flesh is on. Spurgeon tells a story of a man dying. I'm almost done. 20 minutes more. No, just a few minutes more. Spurgeon tells the story of a man uh, that was dying in his congregation, not during the service. He's, he's a, an attendee of his church, a member of his church. And he went to visit the man as he was dying. And the man, uh, you know, Spurgeon, as the pastor is supposed to do, he wants to see where the faith is. That's primary. The, the doctors will do their thing. The pastor has to find out where is this person's faith. And the man tells Spurgeon, he says, 15 years ago, sir, said he, Spurgeon telling the story. One Thursday night, I dropped into the tabernacle to hear you preach. And blessed be the day I looked to Christ and found salvation. I have had plenty of ups and downs, but Jesus has never left me nor forsaken me. And I am not going to think that he will do so now. His word stands fast forever. My strength is in God. That's the testimony of the righteous. That's the testimony built on the testimonies of Scripture. He never would have gotten to that place without the religious record that we hold so dear. So I would say as we leave today the sanctuary to remind us all to be kind because everyone you meet is facing some battle. And if they're at a time of peace in their lives, they'll face one later. God does not want us to suffer but he wants us to be able to suffer. And we trust him with that. We have to trust him. And for those who reject Christ, there can be no happy ending for you. Uh, You you will go through your life suffering in your own strength. The world has its own brand of facing trouble, but it is only good for one lifetime. And there are no second chances after that. Sinners may oppose God's ways, but they cannot oppose his wrath. And so considering the things we've been talking about, they are for the believer. The unbeliever has a bigger problem. He is an unbeliever. And to resolve that, Christ makes the invitation. Uh, I want, as a believer of Jesus Christ, the same defiant spirit exhibited by Habakkuk the prophet when he said this in Habakkuk 3, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will joy in the God of my salvation. 
That is a defiant faith, and that's what we should be shooting for. Let's pray. Our Father, how forceful are right words, and how powerful is your Holy Spirit. Even if we admire the words but have not the strength, there, there you are. That you come into the picture because you never go out of it. And we love you for it. We love that you are above whatever it is we face. You've been above from the beginning. We are born into this world sinners and we didn't even know it. And when it pleased you, you made yourself known to us. By your grace, we became your, your child and your workmanship. And we thank you. And we want to be used by you to the benefit of others. If you've been listening and you have never opened your heart to Jesus Christ, you have a chance right now. Just make this prayer. God will receive you. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. I come to you and I ask you to forgive me. No one else is good enough or powerful enough to take away my sin. Not just cover it, but to take it away. I come to you and I ask you to forgive me and to be from this day forward the one that saves my soul from judgment over my sin and also is the Lord over my life. And I give my life to you. And to the believers, Lord, may we not be so quick to run away from knowing you love us. No matter how much we fail and struggle, I would ask that we who believe would understand that you understand, that you do love, that sin is no joke, but neither is grace. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.